Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today we have Rohini Ross, who is a psychotherapist, a leadership consultant, and a transformative coach, and a regular blogger at the Huffington Post. She helps organizations, leaders, couples, individuals experience more well-being, greater success, and just a life more fulfilled. And we're going to talk about her work and that topic today. So we're back on to more of the, the side of our lives that's not necessarily about diet or what we're eating and something regarding health, but our mental health and our emotional health and how that all ties in. And I think she's going to have a lot of great stuff for us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, for everyone who's interested, and we'll, we'll of course cover this at the end, but RohiniRoss.com, that's our R-O-H-I-N-I-R-O-S-S.com. And so tell us about this. You've, you've, obviously have a lot of little titles here. You had to take a train, uh, some journey to get there. Tell us what prompted you to, to go on this path where now you really are helping others. Well, you know, it's really, it has been such a, a long windy journey, but I don't quite know how far back you want me to start, but I'll, I'll start where it makes sense for me. And you let me know if you want to course correct, but I always knew, even from a very young age, when I was young, I, I always knew that I wanted to work in a healing capacity. And in my mind, that meant that I wanted to grow up and be a doctor. And so from, you know, probably eight, maybe even earlier on, uh, on that was what I thought I was going to do. And so I get into college, I do my first year pre-med, I get straight A's, everything is fine. And then my second year of college, things just started to fall apart for me. And it unraveled pretty quickly and, and really took me by surprise. And what happened was that one, the pre-med classes started to get a lot harder. Um, and I wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to um, not being able to just kind of figure things out on my own. So it was really difficult for me to reach out and ask for support and then I was in a car accident with my boyfriend and we weren't, neither one of us, thank goodness, was seriously injured, but the car rolled several times and I really did think I was going to die in that experience. And so it really shook me up in a way that I did not bounce back from it. Like, oh, I'm fine. Let's good. I'm good to go. And so I went into what I now understand was a depression and that was also really challenging in terms of one, being willing to reach out for support. Two, when I did reach out for support, the people that I reached out to at student counseling and so forth, they're like, oh, you seem fine. You're okay. And I'm like, no, I'm not fine. I'm not okay. But that shifted my focus um, from being a medical doctor to looking at healing more generally. And what happened at that time was you know, I really felt like I was struggling academically. So I went to see the dean and he said, you know, you've either got to focus on the goal and the goal is, is you've got enough inside of you to get there, even if you're struggling, or why don't you take the classes that you really enjoy? And I didn't have his level of confidence at the time that I could pull it together and do these classes. I really felt like I was sinking and I don't think he really understood how much I was struggling at the time. And that took me on a course correct where I just decided, okay, I'm going to change my major and I'm going to do the classes that I really enjoy. And that took me into the field of cultural geography and anthropology. And I ended up doing a master's degree in that area. And I um, studied the indigenous people of Guatemala, the Mayans and research that had been done there. It was a really rich and fulfilling journey. And while I was doing my master's in that, I also had some time to do some work on myself that I wasn't necessarily planning on doing in the sense that while I was doing research in Guatemala, I ended up getting um, parasites because I was staying in these really rural remote villages. And when I would, went back to Canada where I was doing my um, master's, I would see the doctors and they'd say, well, all the tests are fine. You know, it's nothing wrong here. 
And I knew that I wasn't well and I could tell that I wasn't myself. And on top of that, um, the emotional issues that I'd been struggling with since the car accident hadn't really cleared up. And at this point, I decided that I was going to really try some things that were different for me. And I went to see a naturopath. I started seeing a therapist. And through all of that, I started doing yoga, meditation. I completely changed my diet. And so it was a really uh, incredible opening up to a whole new way of living my life, a whole different focus rather than just being externally motivated to you know achieve goals on the outside I started to realize that wow there's a lot going on on the inside that's really a whole other world that I was so unfamiliar with and at the time I hadn't been um, in touch with my father since I was two and a half there was a very abrupt split between him and my mother and so after the accident that sort of hurt started to surface and that completely um, took me by surprise. And so as I went on this journey into alternative medicine, yoga, meditation, therapy, I started to understand that healing was much more than what I originally thought it was about in terms of the Western medical model of becoming a doctor. And so as I finished my master's degree, I realized, no, I do. I want to go back and work in a healing capacity with people. Um, I loved the, the research that I was doing, but I wanted to be more involved with people and not just involved with books and research. And so I decided to go, I was living in Canada, I decided to go back to England where I was born, where I believe my father was living. And I decided that I would seek him out and try and connect with him at that time. And I got a job working in this Guatemalan textile museum in London. So that was really fortunate. And I thought, I'm just going to wing it. I'm going to go. I've got this job. I have somewhere to stay. And I'm going to try and connect with my father. And then I'm going to take some time to figure out what is it that I want to keep doing. And now as I look back, I realize that's kind of a question that I, I continually keep asking myself because I see that one of the themes in my life is this process of being willing to reinvent myself based on new information coming in and seeing things differently. And so I set out on this adventure and um, it didn't go as planned as most adventures don't go as planned. And I got to London and I had the contact information for my father's best friend. I knew uh, of him through my godmother. She didn't have my father's contact information, but she had his best friend's information. And so I called him and I told him I wanted to get in contact with my father. And he said that he, he wasn't willing to give me the information but he would pass along that I was wanting to get in contact with him. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go with that. That's the best that can be done. That's the best that can be done. And so I put that out there into the universe and nothing happened. It was very hard. And I didn't hear anything. And it was kind of like a, a whole different grieving process that happened. And at the same time this was going on, the job at the textile museum was not going well. And I realized that I was allergic to the uh, preservatives that were being used on the material. So I was getting these headaches and I wasn't feeling good. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so at the time, I recently, I, it was it's my husband, but at the time it was my boyfriend. And he uh, was a fashion photographer. And he said, well, what I'd like, I've got to find another job. I can't do this anymore. And he said, well, why don't I introduce you to some modeling agencies? And I said, well, you know, okay. But, um, you know, I think I was 24 at the time. So I'm not young in the modeling world. And, um, but I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. And so he introduced me to an agent and they, you know, just a funny string, string of events happened where they took me on and, um, Within probably days, I was being flown to Milan and ended up working for Giorgio Armani. And that was the start of my modeling career that went on for about eight years after that. So I went from being this feminist scholar to this fashion model in Europe, which is kind of a little surreal for me. But it, it, it made sense at the time. And it actually took me on a whole different path in terms of getting my mind off trying to find my father and just getting involved in, in working, seeing the world, having fun that way, but always in the back of my mind, still wondering, 
wondering like, okay, and where am I going to land? Like, this is my temporary pit stop, but where am I going to land? And in the process of that, I came back to London eventually and continued working as a model. But I then, um, and I don't know how they found me, but my, I ha- unfortunately she's passed away. It's very sad, but I have a half sister, had a half sister and she managed to track me down. And what happened was when my dad's friend gave him the message, he was so, um, he felt so badly that he wasn't able to reach out to me. And I had this whole other narrative going on in my mind about why he didn't reach out. She explained to me that it was because he, he just couldn't bring himself to do it. And so when she found out about it, she reached out to me and um, she called me. It was in the morning. I was just about ready to go out. And I get this um, call and she says, I'm your sister. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. And she said, I want to see you. We, we want to meet you. We want to see you. When can you come? And I said, well, um, well, I, I can come today. I'll come down today. And so she said, great. And I was in central London. They lived just outside of um, London in the south. And so I had recently got back um, from Europe and I hadn't set up any banking, um, any of my banking yet in London. And I didn't have I was short by a pound of the money that I needed to get down um, to the train or get the train down to see them. And so I called up Angus, who was working. And I explained to him what was going on. He said, don't worry about it. When I finish work, I'll come down and I'll drive you down there. No problem. And so as he's working, his photo shoot is taking a turn for the worse that it's going south. And he calls me back and he says, I'm not going to be able to bring you. It's not going well. I'm going to be going into overtime. Um, I'm sorry. I can't help you. And so, you know, normally in those kind of situations, you know, my mind would be working Normally, I would have some rational alternative to figure out, but I was in just such an emotional state at that time that it just felt like the world was falling apart. And um, and he, you know, then he starts talking about getting a um, a bike to send me money, and it was just all this convoluted stuff. And then eventually, I don't know exactly what made me decide to do it, but I just said, "I'm going to figure it out. Don't worry about it." And I went down to this little delicatessen that we would um, buy our food from quite often. And I went down with like this tear stained face. <laughs> the poor owner is looking at me. Sure. Now I didn't think of it at the time, but I'm sure he thought I was this battered woman going into his store. And I said, may I have some money? I can pay you back. And he's like, his eyes. Got really good. And he, he's like, what do you need? And I said, I need a pound. He's just like, here, take the pound. And so I get the money and I go down um, and I was probably two hours late and I finally meet my father and my, and I have a half brother, my half sister, his wife. And it was just one of those moments where I just got there and I just fell into his arms. You know, it was just like, he gave me this hug and I just let go and I just burst into tears. And it was like, I had been holding on for 20 years to have that hug. And I just, in that moment, saw how I could let go of all of this pain. But it wasn't just because I met him. It wasn't just about the physical outer connection. What I also, I didn't see this fully at the time, but what I see now more clearly is that there was a huge internal shift that happened when I knew that he loved me. And that situation was the external catalyst for that. But what I see now is that it didn't, I didn't need to have that in order to let that belief go because that, that wasn't true. Let me, let me ask you, we're going to, I want to get into a couple questions about that experience. Um, number one, you know, going way back to the beginning when you were talking about the accident and how, you know, no one was really there to help you and that kind of set you on a search. You know, the first thing I was thinking while you were saying that was, oh, you know, that what a you're seemingly having like a metaphysical issue with the trauma <laughs> regarding that, right? You know, when you have it sort of a near death or you think you're going to die, that can really propel one to say, why am I here? What am I doing? What is this about? And, um, you know, so I can see why you were searching on, on that road and then all these things popped up and your experience with your father 
I agree with you, and I see that that's a part of you know the work, and we'll get into the three principles and the work that you do. And I know Carrie Sisson is really just loves your work and and you know is a huge fan. And part of that is so even if your father didn't want to see you, even if you knew he didn't love you, you still could have had you you realized that in that experience you had the ability to let go and release that, right? Because it wouldn't have mattered, would it have, if he did or didn't love you? You can still reach that same level. Do you see where I'm going with that? I absolutely see where you're going. And that that's really important. And that was the point that I wanted to make. There was this really beautiful external situation that occurred. But what I see now is if I'd never had that, if that hadn't happened, and you're right, if he didn't want to see me, if there was real antagonism there, that pain that I was feeling was not coming from that. It was coming from the internal belief that I didn't even realize that I was holding so dearly and, and buying into so fully. And it, for me, that was what helped me to let it go. But we don't need that on the external. It can be an internal realization that happens. And ultimately, even though something happened on the outside, I had an internal realization that was what let me let that go. Because on the other side of things, I could have had that whole experience with my father and not let that idea go. I could have not that realization and still held on to a belief and understanding that I wasn't lovable. And, and in many ways, it has been a process of letting that go. I felt like a big chunk of that was let go of at that point in time. But then more subtle things would, would show up over the years where I realized, wow, I thought I'd let that go. And I haven't really. I'm still buying into that old story again. So it's... Yeah, it's let's talk for- about the old story. Yeah. What was that story? I mean, we know the the logistics, but what was the story in your head that if you, you know, cause you've obviously mapped it out by now, you know what I mean? What was that story that you were telling? The, the story that I created for myself was along the lines of perfectionism. Like if I could externally prove that I was worthy, then I would be able to feel good enough. And you could fill in the blank, whether that be academics, getting straight A's. And that's why when I was having trouble in that second year of university, why it felt like such a disaster to me to not be able to perform academically in the way that I was used to and expecting myself to. Like someone else might be like, what's the big deal? You know, maybe you get a few C's, who cares? Like, but for me to go from straight A's to not being able to, you know, focus and pay attention and, and even understand what was going on very well. That was like the end of the world at the time. It felt like my whole worth weighed on me being able to have those external um, markers. And I didn't see that then. Now, obviously, I can see how the, the pressure that I was putting on myself was just so enormous. And it didn't give me the space that I needed to bounce back from that whole accident experience. Like you said, it was not just a, oh, my neck's a little sore, not a big deal. It sent me into that really deep questioning of what am I here for? And am I okay? And how do I make sense of things now that things are shaken up in this way and things aren't lining up in the way that I thought they should. I'm assuming that after the experience of letting go of this and having that realization you had that day, that I'm assuming the habits of perfectionism altered in your life? Well, it's interesting. I love that you asked that question because they, they, they got more subtle, but it's that's where I've had sort of ongoing ahas around it. So it was interesting also that I was modeling at the time because I was used to hard work producing results, you know, work hard, you get the results and modeling. Is not- and then you're on a beach in a bikini and you're like, wait a minute, this is really, this is really freaking easy. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, what do you do? And and I mean, I was very fortunate. I was not at the time. I was not someone that you know struggled with my weight. So it wasn't like I had to work out all the time or you know any of that. So um, it was really I had to sort of find a way to not be putting pressure on myself. And what I did with that was I went internal with the pressure. So I started to be more 
perfectionistic inwardly rather than on external goals. So it's like when um, they talk about addictions and you let go of one addiction and another one pops up. My perfectionism was an addiction and I let go of it in certain areas, but then it would pop up in other areas. And what was going on this whole time was sort of my deepening in my um, spiritual exploration, like I mentioned, the yoga and the meditation. And I started to get put pressure on myself in that area. And in many ways, there was huge benefits to that. But there was still a subtle side, a dark side to it, because it was still the ego trying to exercise its um, misunderstanding in just another area. And so, you know, after, you know, I did, I modeled for um, many years, but during that time, like I said, I was always looking for what's my next step going to be in terms of getting back into the world of healing. And as part of the modeling, I had the opportunity to come work here in the U.S. And um, so Angus and I moved here to the U.S. to do that. And he was working as a photographer and ended up also um, working doing that here. So we ended up staying. But we moved to Los Angeles and I came across the University of Santa Monica that was offering programs in spiritual psychology. And as soon as I saw that program and I saw that they offered at that time, they offered the uh, master's in counseling psychology so that you become a licensed therapist. I said, OK, that's what I'm going to do. That's the next step. I finally found it. And so I went in to that program and um, took it over many years because I had two children in the time. So it was like a, it was a, a part-time education, but I eventually graduated and got licensed as a therapist. And in that process, so much healing occurred in terms of letting go of judgments, letting go of old beliefs, like you were talking about, but there was still this subtle underlying bit that I hadn't let go of in terms of the perfectionism that was now sort of pushing me to get rid of all of my limiting beliefs and judgments, you know, like be perfect in terms of not to have any negativity in my consciousness. Right. You become addicted to the spiritual, you know, it's almost too, like sometimes people get sober, they go to A and they get addicted to A a little bit. <laughs> you know I mean? It's, I understand how you would as a perfectionist then be like, I have to excel here. Exactly. And then, as with AA, there's a lot of good things that come from being something that's healthy. So there were so many benefits from that. But there was still what I found when I was, um, I started one of the first jobs that I had as a therapist was working with very um, uh, families in crisis. And I was on call a lot of the time for that job. And it was a very, uh, what I experienced as an intense environment. and. In that, in external experience of intensity, my internal in experience of intensity was not serving me. And I was starting to feel burnt out after really just starting, you know, just getting licensed and just starting this job. And so it was from that place that I said, wow, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be able to be a therapist. Like I thought I wanted to do this, but maybe this isn't going to work out for me. Because it's, uh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to not get burnt out from this. And so at that point, I started to look into coaching because many people at the University of Santa Monica and, and here in L.A. in general are, were at the time becoming coaches. And I thought, oh, if I work as a coach, that's probably going to be um, an environment that is perhaps something that I won't burn out in because I wasn't seeing that it was coming from inside of me at that time. And so I started, I got um, a certification as a coach on top of my therapy qualifications. And then I started to do continuing education and coaching. And one of the programs that I did was where I was introduced to the understanding of the three principles. And it felt very aligned in terms of what I had learned at USM. And, and in a sense, it felt very similar. Let me ask you about the three principles. Can you tell us what is it? Yeah, like, well, I can and I can't in a sense. <laughs> right. So it's the three principles is an understanding. It's a spiritually based understanding that um, is becoming uh, quite well known within the mental health field and the coaching field. 
And it was um, a understanding first taught by someone called Sidney Banks, who had an enlightenment experience in the 70s. And from that experience, he started teaching psychologists and therapists and getting the word out based on what he saw. And, you know, in a very simple way, what he saw is that we create our experience of reality using what, you know, he termed the three principles of mind, consciousness, and thought. And so mind is simply put the energy behind life. And from that energy behind life, we have the capacity to have thought and to think about um, the world. And with the principle of consciousness, we have the capacity to be aware that we think. And so the three together is what actually allows us to have experience um, in this physical form. And that the three working together are constantly creating our reality moment to moment. And that can sound kind of esoteric and, you know, sort of out there. But what I find about the way that the three principles are being taught is that it's being taught in a very practical way in terms of helping people see that their reality is being created internally rather than externally. Can you give us uh, an example, either an exchange you had with someone you were coaching, something that people can relate to out there that would be practical? So let's say someone is, um, well, I'll use myself as an example. So um, the other day uh, I'm married and my husband and I were not happy with each other. And my experience of that situation was that he was being annoying. Now that was how it looks, but if I'm looking at it, excuse me, from the understanding of the principles, what I'm seeing is that, oh, my experience is being internally generated by my own thoughts and I'm reacting to my own thoughts. I'm not reacting to him. So no matter how annoyed I am, I'm actually responding to my own judgmental thoughts in that moment. And if I wasn't having those judgmental thoughts, if I was having more compassionate thoughts, I would have a completely different experience inside of myself. Like, for example, do you mean something like, well, I see that this happened to him three hours prior that was upsetting and maybe that's why he's on edge and being annoying, like more of a compassion from that point of view of understanding where they might be coming from, not excusing it, but something like that? that what you mean? Yeah, I mean that exactly that there that I could have that perspective that would say, oh, he's not being himself right now, or he's tired. It, it, what happened was his arm was really sore. So he's kind of irritable and grumpy. But I was I just was feeling reactive to my own thinking in that moment, rather than like you said, having perspective, realizing, oh, he's not himself. I wonder what's going on, um, that he's feeling irritable right now. So it's, not the understanding of the principles is not a prescriptive. This is what you do in those situations. How it's helpful is that when we really understand that our experience is subjective and it's temporary. So I was temporarily reactive in that moment, but I knew that I wasn't myself in that moment either. That's not my natural state. The natural state of all of us as human beings is to be in a equilibrium, to be in a good feeling state. That is who we are naturally. We don't have to work at getting there. If we allow ourselves, that's where we're going to land. And if we're not in a good feeling state, if we're not in peace or equanimity, we are generating those thoughts that are taking us out of that ourselves. It's not coming from the person that we think it's coming from or from the circumstance that we think it's coming from. It's coming from our own perspective and that goes up and down. So like you were saying earlier, if I was in a really good mood, I would have clarity and I would be able to have compassion, not excuse, like you said, behavior that isn't okay, but to really just have perspective on it and not take it personally. But because I wasn't in that state in that moment, I did take it personally, but I know that all of that is coming from inside of me and that I'm only temporarily in balance and that I don't need to work on anything or do anything if I actually allow the natural 
course corrective mechanism inside of me to take care of it, I'm going to end up back where I'm at. I want to go ahead and throw out a devil's advocate challenge. I'm sure people have presented this objection to you before, but in, in, in that same example, someone out there might be like, okay, yeah, so let's say your husband's irritable every day. He's, you know, there's only so, right? So there, there comes a limit, right? You're not going to put up with and live with a crappy environment for long periods of time, right? This is not a way of excusing behavior. So can you touch on that nuance? Because, you know, I'm sure there's people out there that are like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, this could keep happening though. And would you just keep not getting affected by it? I mean, who wants to subject themselves to that after a while? You'd like to remove yourself from that, that environment, right? Maybe if it were chronic. So what would you have to say about that? So there's, gosh, I've got a whole bunch of things coming to my head. So let me see where to start. So everybody has their own bandwidth and everybody has their own um, areas where like, well, that's a deal breaker for me. So for somebody that might be, um, if their husband's irritable every day, that's a deal breaker for someone else that might not be a deal breaker. So I don't know. I certainly would enjoy it. But what what's really most powerful and profound is the the interplay in the sense that there were very chronic um well let's I'm, I'm gonna answer your question from personal experience in terms of I was in that relationship with my husband that I thought I couldn't be in I was in that place of thinking um this isn't tolerable for me um, the only way that I can be happy is to get out of this relationship. So I've been there, but, and, and again, this is my personal experience. I'm not being prescriptive for anybody else, but what the three principles really helped me to see in a way that I hadn't seen before was that fundamentally my peace and well-being comes from inside of me. And because I was feeling like my peace and well-being and happiness was constantly being impacted by my husband's mood, temper, how he's behaving, I was responding to it from a place of feeling like I was victimized by how he was behaving. And that created a very negative dynamic, which was one that I was like not going to stay in. But when I really experienced you know, not just an intellectual knowing, but on a, a, you know, just an experiential knowing that safety, peace, well-being, that is my natural state. And if he's angry or annoyed, even if it's with me, I don't have to lose touch with it, that that actually is separate from what he does. What happened was I started to become immune to his, um, when he wasn't himself, when he wasn't okay. And what was looking like it was a terminal dynamic where we just could not get along, all of a sudden was a dynamic in which I wasn't taking the bait anymore. And I actually could see that when he wasn't himself, when he was irritable, I could see that he was suffering. I could see that it was coming from his own um, limitations and being caught up in his own uh, negative thinking and that it was painful and that that isn't who he is. And when I was able to see that, it completely shifted how I responded in those situations. And as a result of that, it shifted how he responded in those situations too. And so what I thought was a situation that was terminal irreconcilable differences, as they say, just can't get along. Obviously, his problem, not mine. What I saw was, oh, this was being kept alive. The negativity was being kept alive because I was constantly feeling like my well-being's internal safety was being threatened. And so I was reacting to that. But when I found that foundation more firmly inside of myself, I could see him more clearly and seeing him more clearly helped me to connect with the, the real love that is there and that was there, but that I just wasn't connecting with and everything shifted. And I'm married to the same man now. I've been married for 22 years and he's the same person. 
I'm the same person, but we don't behave the same way. And even when I mentioned that little incident from a few days ago, where I felt really annoyed with him, and I know he felt really annoyed with me, it didn't, it, it was done. It was a quick, it was a quick one, right? Not a fester. Exactly. It was done. And it was not like I felt damaged by it. It was not like I had to do all this repair work or, I mean, we might have, we both said we were sorry because we'd said some hurtful things, but it was, we both got back to our internal stability and we're back in the loving and black in the good feeling before we knew it. And that's the foundation that is different for me. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't leave their partners if it's not working. I, I'm really clear that I'm not telling anybody to do anything. But what I am saying is that having the understanding that we are 100% responsible for our internal experience, even when things aren't good on the outside, that our experience is still being created internally, that was freedom for me. And it helped to heal our relationship. I would agree with that. Uh, a couple of things that came to mind when you were discussing that little tiff uh, with, with your husband is, you know, also in that moment or any moment with anyone, um, it could be, you know, I was driving out of a parking lot of a grocery store and some like wacky homeless looked definitely mentally ill person just like screamed a swear word at me a couple times. Like, you know, I'm sure he did it to 10 other people, that were go- but it jolted me in that minute. You know, like I just, someone just screamed like a, you know, swear word at me and I was just jolted. And even though it was someone that you're like, okay, clearly that wasn't personal. They don't know me, you know, uh, you get jolted in that moment and there's still a moment. I got to tell you, you know, my vibration got a little negative for a second, but because I practice a lot of the things that, you know, we, we, you talk about and I'm a coach as well. I just had to do a talk out on that. I was like, hold on a minute. Am I really going to let this person's opinion or, or shout out, uh, change the way I think about myself? You know, am I going to allow something externally alter my perception and how, you know, that is not only giving a lot of power to external things. That means then you're on the hamster train of until X happens, I'm not going to feel X, right? Until I get the house, I won't be happy until I get that job. I won't be this or whatever it is. Right. And I'm with you on, you know, it all, you create your own reality because you're in it, in your brain, you really can rewire it and choose a different path. And since I've been on that train, I definitely do not get offended and or, um, gosh, I, re, not as reactive in life to things that we're talking about. I really, really don't. And I tend to also be able to quickly brush off anyone else's perhaps opinion or whatever that, or even a perception of opinion, you know, cause like you said, even before you had a story even about your dad and that he didn't love you or whatever, which turned out not to be true. And we can have stories that aren't true. Um, which, you know, and anyone I've mentioned on this show before, but the work of Byron Katie is amazing. If you're, um, who has a great, great series about, about that and looking at what is really true here? Because a lot of our thoughts aren't and they generate negative feelings and perceptions. And then we find out later they may be wrong. And then we go, oh my gosh, and here I was that whole time suffering or crying or being angry at this person or whatever the scenario was. And um, I love, I love this type of internal work and this coaching and everything that, you know, University of Santa Monica as well. It's just a great curriculum there. I love this, this avenue. I wish people would tap more into the introspection and and the, it, you do need guidance though. And that's the thing. And, uh, there's where, there's where coaching comes in. What, what would be another example or something of someone outside of yourself? Um, obviously we don't have to mention names, but a, a scenario that might be another practical one where someone was able to really get through something and come on the other end by just going inward and examining these thoughts. Well, on a really practical level, one of the things that I do is I work with um, coaches um, on practice building. And so often what gets in the way of people really uh, stepping forward in service and doing their work and earning um, an appropriate income based on the services they're offering is their own limiting beliefs and their own overthinking of the situation. And so, you know, in more than one occasion in the work that I've done with people, I really help them to see how innocently they're getting in their own way and not listening to their deeper wisdom that can guide them in a very practical level in terms of 
um, pricing, in terms of conversations with potential clients, in terms of uh, the type of programming that really is aligned with them. And it's that when you talk about how important coaching is, I think one of the greatest values is that so often we, when we're left to our own devices, are blind to those spots where we are getting in our own way, because obviously if we could see it, we wouldn't be doing it. And so having someone else to reflect back or ask um, questions um, about things that don't make sense to us on the other side can really help to clarify that for individuals. And so um, I think that money has a lot of uh, history and conditioned thinking for a lot of people is one of the hot buttons. And so when that gets exposed and revealed and is seen as that's the story that I was making up. I don't have to buy into those insecure thoughts. I mean, basically, whatever the issue is, whether it's money, whether it's relationship, whether it's, um, you know, any goal that someone is having trouble, trouble achieving, being successful with, what's getting in the, in the way are insecure thoughts. Absolutely. Amen. Thank God you said that. I am so with you. And about promoting and helping people build self-worth and just natural self-confidence because they're, it's, it's there. It's, it's what it should be. And life and people we grew up with, et cetera, might alter one's perception and you need to get back to it, right? It's like this, all of this process of self-inquiry and spirituality or met- metaphysical journeys is really about tapping into knowing yourself and how you think and what your thoughts are and being able to change those. And you can, and it really does work. It's amazing. And it doesn't take long. It really doesn't, you know, even like 30 days of just being aware, um, can really turn your life around. Yeah. It's so much closer than we think because really it's, um, as the teacher Sydney Banks said with his enlightenment experience, it's like, it's one thought away. You know, it's only ever one thought away. And that for me was where, you know, when I was talking about that whole perfectionist streak that I was having, like I applied it to my spiritual pursuits and it wasn't, it got to a point where I was getting burnt out. And like I said, in terms of the work, I was feeling burnt out. And when I, what I saw with the principles was that what I was doing to myself was not truly, um, a spiritual pursuit. What I was doing to myself was I was trying to get rid of my humanness. I was trying to get to a point where I didn't have any frailties and where I, you know, I thought in my head there was some place that I could arrive at. And with the principles, what I saw was that all of it is a normal, healthy part of the human experience, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that rather than trying to work on myself and improve myself, where I went to was, oh, this is about allowing all of this to be okay. And even if I'm out of balance, knowing that I'm going to come back into that place of center, I'm going to reconnect with that place of compassion inside of myself. And that rather than a higher level of spiritual understanding, meaning that I don't have certain qualities, what I arrived at was, oh, a higher level of spiritual understanding for me meant that I embraced and accepted all of my qualities and judged them. I stopped judging them as wrong or bad or something to get rid of. And I just saw them as part of the normal range of human experience. And that freed me up from this you know, I don't know, obsession, I guess you could say, of trying to improve myself. And it wasn't improving me. It was making me feel worse because I was getting exhausted. And it just gave me back all of this energy and helped me see that if our natural state is love, if our natural state is peace, if our natural state is well-being, then we don't need to work at getting there. It's an opportunity of subtraction that gets us there. It's an opportunity of letting go of something that we are doing that gets us there. And we actually get to work less and put less effort in and get better results and better results in terms of our own well-being, but better results also in terms of our ability to tap into the creative potential that lies inside of each one of us. 
And from that creative potential, that's what we bring into the world. And that's how we create success for us. So it's less work, less effort, and more success. It's like, wow, how could I be going wrong? It's amazing. <laughs> um, you know, all this just made me think of, I was reading an article the other day that talked about the, the Danish people who are considered the happiest people in the world. And they've done lots of studies on them. And they have sort of this way of life uh, called, I think, the Hige, H-Y-G-G-E. Hige, I'm not sure how to pronounce it exactly. Um, but one of the things of the studies they did was that um, and my stepfather is from Denmark, and he just doesn't really have bad days. It takes a lot to to get him irked, and if he is irked, it's real brief. I mean, the guy does just not have bad days, and if something seemingly awful happens and traumatic happens, he's the one that's like, whatever, change course. Let's figure out how to get out. And one of the things is they, when they studied, is they said the Danish people they they don't have expectations, and it's not that it's you know you wouldn't you wouldn't hold a friend to a promise and expect something if someone agrees to something, but it's more that when things don't go the way they're expected, they just accept it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Instead of argue with it, uh, bitch and curse about it and, you know, continue on that train like a lot of people do. And uh, it's really interesting to watch. And it's really an interesting thing because I think a lot of this work that we're talking about, uh, whether it's three principles or any sort of this spiritual work, it's kind of getting to that place right naturally where your things roll off the back and you're okay with the fact that it didn't work out. And there might be a moment or there might be a moment of annoyance with your husband, but then it's over. And isn't that the train we all want to get off, right? Is this continual stressful train where now we've called five people that week, we've all bitched to them about the same story. Now we're carrying it on. And each time we're just refueling that and we're creating uh, a place we don't want to be, and that's not our natural state. So I just, I just wanted to throw that in there because it, it reminds me of that, right? Going with the flow sounds so cliche, but that's what that's about, right? It's just accepting that, like, okay, that's a bummer, or okay, I missed the flight, but am I gonna sit here and and be in suffering, or am I gonna? I'm only a thought away, right? What a more pleasant way to live life rather than feeling constantly disappointed over and over again, because some idea that we made up, not reality, some idea that we made up wasn't met. You know, like I had the idea that my husband should be nice to me all the time. It was a nice idea, but it was an expectation. That wasn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless you put in writing and agreed to it, I don't know. If you could <laughs> he probably would have. He wanted to be nice to me, but he's just not going to live up to it. <laughs> all right. There you go. There's always that people who break some promises. <laughs> But yeah, so I, I love that. Um, and I, I'd heard about the Danish people being the happiest people in the world, but I hadn't heard of that, um, that word, that term you use. So that sounds fantastic and very much aligned with what I'm saying. Tell us how, um, how can people work with you and tell us about the work that you do? I know you obviously, you know, you, you're a regular contributor uh, as a writer and also, you know, do events, but do you do one-on-one -on -one coaching and how does it work? Yes, I do offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. And Usually what that would look like is I start off with a three-day um, retreat intensive and lay the foundation of the work that we're going to do together. And then after that three days, we look at if someone, sometimes people just have something very specific that they want to work on and we spend that time doing that. Other people want a more long-term coaching relationship. And so then based on that foundational three days, then we look at what would be an ongoing um, long-term project of how we'd work together. I unfortunately missed a three-day event you were doing at the Sisson's house not too long ago, so I would like to be a part of the next one. Um, I think you did sort of an introductory event sort of at her house to introduce people to three principles recently, right? Yes, we did. And we are going to be doing um, ongoing quarterly events, so I'm sure there'll be another opportunity. That's great. And what do you work just with people sort of whenever they need it? Do you have package programs or is it just sort of you know, hourly and as needed when people need to chat with you? And do you do it only in person after that three-day workshop? Or can people call you over the phone and have a session with you? Yeah. The, so the three days can be done either. And ideally, that's done in person. Some people need to do it at a distance. And then after that, it can be done by phone or Zoom or in person. There's plenty of ways to connect these days with technology. What would you say would be, you know, top three, five things that have really transformed and changed for the better in your life since going through the three principles? My um, 
level of daily happiness is just overall so much higher. I feel such a greater level of freedom inside of myself, which I think has impacted all areas. So my relationship with my husband, my relationship with my children, my business has really taken off. And I, I put that down to that greater level of freedom inside of me and really being willing to put myself out there and not editing myself in the way that I was doing before and, and being okay with my humanness, being okay with um, that being seen and not thinking that I had to get to a certain place before I needed to do that. Just realizing, Hey, this is what I got to give. I'll give it in the best way that I can and it will help some people. And that's a good thing. That's awesome. And you're also the co-author of a couple of books too. You want to tell us a, a little bit about that? Um, the, the book I think you're referring to is the nine heart centered essentials of parenting team. And that was something that I wrote when I was with the uh, company that I mentioned working with families in crisis. So that's very much grounded in real world experience. And that is available on amazon.com, I believe. Excellent. And you can go to rohiniross.com and we'll of course put all the links in the show notes. Can you tell, are you on social media? And if so, will you tell us what your handle is and how we can connect with you? Absolutely. And one of the things that I put a lot of my heart into is my weekly blog. So that goes out on Monday. So anyone who's interested can sign up for that um, on my website or find it on the Huffington Post. And my handles on Facebook, it's Rohini Ross. Actually, I think it's Rohini Ross across the board. I'm lucky I have one of those names that wasn't taken. Right. That's a, you have a unique one. I'm like, how did mine even get taken? That was a little bit unique, but someone got it <laughs> for me. Thank you so much for joining us again, rohiniross.com. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending, uh, spending the hour with us. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.